Welcome to the Crossview Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy the message this morning. For more information, visit us at mycrossview.com. Well, I'm very grateful uh, that we were able to hear from Kevin Austin last week uh, as he shared with us about Set Free. And I want to just encourage you to pray for him. He's now over in Africa. Uh, along with a number of our other uh, denominational leaders for a meeting that happens once a year of all the world leaders uh, from the Free Methodist Church. So it's kind of some big meeting. So pray for him and for all of our other leaders uh, over this next week or so. Well, this morning we are jumping back into our Acts series and uh, we've been working our way through this book and we've been learning some really important lessons about uh, what's happening at the beginning of the early church. And I know there's lots that we could talk about. Uh, we're, we're taking just a story or two from each chapter. And so I encourage you to spend time reading Acts. We've got some additional study materials that'll help you get into some other things listed on our website um, if you'd like to do that. But two weeks ago, we were encouraged toward boldness, if you remember. Uh, we talked about living with courage and acting with public confidence that's all part of the concept and idea of boldness in the book of Acts. And it's all possible. We, we learn through the empowerment of God's spirit. We looked at Peter and John and that story of when they were preaching in the temple, preaching about Jesus. Uh, and we learned about their subsequent arrest. We learned then uh, about what Peter essentially preached the very same message in his, his trial before the, the Sadducees and all the, the city officials there. And we talked about the idea of boldness. Very exciting and encouraging stuff. And I, I hope that's been with you over these last couple of weeks as you've been thinking about that. So far, as we've gone throughout the book of Acts here, we've talked a lot about some really feel-good stuff when it comes to the beginning of the early church. Um, and its work in the world. But today, we're going to look at a story that is a bit tough to read uh, and probably doesn't make a lot of sense to us at first. So today, we are in, the ch in chapter 5, right at the beginning of chapter 5, and we're going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe you know that story. We will read it together. Uh, we're going to read the first 11 verses. But before we read the beginning of chapter 5, Luke, the author of Acts, sets us up really well for the beginning of chapter 5. And he does that because of what he says at the end of chapter 4. There are a few verses right before chapter 5. So we're going to read that just to kind of get this, the, the high sense of drama that I think is built into this a little bit. So Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This is the end of chapter 4. This is what it says. All the believers were united in heart and mind. And, uh, and they felt um, that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. This is kind of reminiscent of chapter 2 a little bit. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. And then just to be a little bit more specific, they tell a story, or Luke tells a story. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field, a field uh, that he owned and brought the money to the apostles. All right. Feels great. This is good, good, good stuff. Now we're ready for the beginning of chapter 5. Okay? So let's, let's turn to chapter 5. We're going to read the first 11 verses. 
But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming that it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell, or not, or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was, tes- uh, was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was, the, was this the price you and your husband received for the land, for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think about conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Wow, (laughs) it's a very different type sounding story than what we've read so far. I don't know about you, but my reaction after reading this is, yikes, (laughs) that is not good. Um, it sounds terrible, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to us right away. In fact, uh, N.T. Wright um, sums up my feelings well about this, and he says this. Let's face it, most of us would have been relieved if Ananias and Sapphira had been confronted with their cheating, had confessed and repented, and had either gone back to the beginning and decided what they really wanted to do with the money, or simply given the rest of the money over to the apostles like they said they already had. <laughs> that seems like a, a better uh, a way forward, at least in terms of how we see things happening. But that's not what happened. So what's going on here? And I mean, it's like, okay, Luke, we thought everything was going well. We thought people were selling and sharing their possessions. Everything was just perfect at the beginning of the church, and then you just pull the rug right out and uh, right out underneath us. One commentator said, this first spirit-filled community wasn't all romance and righteousness. So, Luke, why include this story? What are you trying to tell us? And what I'd like to say is, as we look at this, there's a lot of things that we can learn from this story. Uh, that We could dive in, in deep and talk about the details, but what I think is helpful for us as we are kind of flying through Acts is to get a bit of an over, overview picture, a larger perspective as to why Luke includes this Uh, this story right where he does in the middle of all these other wonderful things happening in the book of Acts. So we're going to kind of take a larger perspective and we'll see a really powerful truth about, about God and the church. The early Christian community was working uh, was working through some growing pains. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, especially as they were kind of figuring out how to operate together and how to operate in the world. Things are going well. They're growing quickly. It's really exciting. There's opportunity here. So Luke takes this opportunity to share a story as a way of reminding the people a very important truth um, about God. And it's likely that his Jewish readers would have picked up on the meaning of this story right away. One of the reasons that Luke includes this story is to reinforce an Old Testament value that's been part of the community of God from the very beginning. 
He wants everyone to know that this is still a value of who we are as we start this new thing. And for us to know is this should still mark us here and now today. And the big idea is this, that the way we reflect God's character and nature matters. The idea here is all encapsulated around what, a concept that we've talked a lot before about, which is holiness. <laughs> uh, so we'll kind of walk through this a little bit, and you'll see how this all connects. You and I, and especially the early church, are mirrors of who God is and how he works in the world. How we go about reflecting him, his character, his nature, and how we go about living out the life that he call, has called us to matters. So in this story, at the beginning of chapter five, there's a stark difference between what the church has been called to, how they started living early, early on, and then this, which is like an upset in the moment. It's like, whoa, that doesn't make sense. That's not who we are. The holiness of Yahweh is still intact at this point. <laughs> and now, more important than ever, the, 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 our holiness, the holiness of those in the early church who claimed the name of Jesus, who were living in that way, that matters. But why is this so important to Luke and why should it be important to us as well? Because of a, of a change and a transition that's happening here in the, in the midst of, of this early church, the moments here in, these early, in the early church, because in this newly inaugurated kingdom, the presence of God on earth now looks and works differently. No longer is God's presence relegated to a physical building on the top of the hill. <laughs> when we understand this is powerful, and this is why Luke puts this in here, or one of the reasons why Luke puts this in here, the presence of God, we know, is now reflected in the people of God through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, right? So we've, we've, that's why the way that we reflect the presence of God in the world around us matters. We've talked about this before, but biblically, one of the chief attributes of God in the whole of Scripture is His holiness, His otherness, the way that He's set apart from the way that other people do life. In Scripture, the words for holiness occur more than 900 times. The primary word for holiness in the Old Testament means, we have said this before, to, set up, to be set apart from something else, to do it a different way, to clearly stand apart from uh, the way other things are. In Scripture, holiness is fundamentally a separation from what is considered unclean or not of God and a focus on becoming what is clean or adopting the attributes of God which set us apart. Casey mentioned this in his prayer, the idea of being formed and transformed here and being honest about the way that that's working in our life is the point of this story. And just in case we were wondering, scripture is clear. God's character is flawless. His love is perfect and his grace abounds, amen? He is holy and to reflect the true character and nature and love of God should be a chief desire of our living. So God is holy, and his holy presence is now reflected not in a temple on a hill, but through you and I, filled with his spirit, doing the work that he's called us to do, which we know from the beginning, or from the end of chapter one and chapter two of Acts, is to do witness-like activities. It's through a people, through God's people, filled with faith, empowered by the spirit. 
the way we reflect God's character and nature matters. A bit later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys his temple, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. (laughs) Peter writes about this uh, in his first letter a bit later and he says this. Maybe thinking about this situation. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with deceit, with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. A few verses later, he says, and we know these ones fairly well, and you are the living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So understanding that the presence of God works differently in the world than it used to is a key to understanding the larger context of why this this story is here and what Luke is trying to tell us. Another commentator said, part of what Luke is trying to tell us, whether we like it or not, is that the early Christian community, even without trying, was functioning somewhat like the temple itself. And they were just trying to figure all this out. And it was to be a place of holiness, of transformation and being formed into the kind of people that God has called us to be. So let's connect this to the Old Testament a little bit, and this is where his Jewish readers would have understood why he's telling the story, why this is in here, because there's actually a number of Old Testament stories that are very similar to the one that we find here in Acts chapter 5, and they're all centered around God's holiness, God's presence, how we treat God's presence, and how we live that out. So, um, there are several Old Testament stories, and this is, it's kind of crazy. So do you remember uh, when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought to Jerusalem for the first time? Uh, it was carried on an ox cart. Do you remember this? And Yuza, one of the caretakers, uh, put his hand out to stop the Ark from falling off the cart. And when he touched the Ark, or the thing that represented the holy presence of God, when he touched it, he fell down dead. Do you remember that story? We'll read just a few verses of it in 2 Samuel. It says, But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there before the ark of God. So we've talked about this story before. I think it was about a year ago we did a series where we, taught, we looked at this particular story, but we noted that Yuza's family had the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that was the representation of God's holy presence, just chilling on their coffee table in their home for about 30 years. I don't know if you remember that. Um, but uh, we wondered, uh, and commentators wondered, if they just got used to it. They lost some of their awe and wonder uh, that went along with the fact that this represented God's holy presence. We know that they didn't, and when they were transporting the ark, they didn't follow the instructions for doing that. The Mosaic tradition gave very clear instructions on what should be done. It wasn't to be touched by human hands. It was supposed to be carried by the Levites or the pastors of the day. And it was supposed to be using poles, not on an ox cart. (laughs) Many commentators talked about the fact that there seemed to be significant disregard on the part of Yuza and his family in their process of caring for the presence of God. So much so that when the oxen tripped, maybe Yuza, even with good intent, reached out and touched the ark, possibly thinking nothing's going to (laughs) happen. 
There's this sense that all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament that God is serious about the people reflecting who he is and the kind of life that he calls us to. In Leviticus 10, it tells of two sons of Aaron who disrespected the holiness of God in the sanctuary, and they also died. In Joshua 7, we find another similar story to the one that we read here in Acts chapter 5. Following the destruction of Jericho, a man named Achan uh, took some things that were supposed to be set aside holy for the Lord, devoted to the Lord, and trouble comes on his community and on him, and as a result of his theft and dishonesty in the presence of God, he eventually gets found out and dies. Second Chronicles, this is great. This is really encouraging stuff, isn't it? <laughs> oh, man. Second Chronicles 26 tells of King Uzziah, um, not the same person as we talked about Uzziah, who was the caretaker of the ark. It said that when he became powerful as king, he was at the height of his power and pride. He walked right into the Holy of Holies in the temple, started burning incense. This was a brazen act, not the way it worked. And the high priest runs after him, and the Levites, the pastors of the day, run after him. And they tell him he can't be in here. And because of his pride and his disrespect of God and at God's holy presence, he was struck with leprosy right then and there. So we could go on, but I think you get the point. And this is not to say, I mean, you know that we are theologically optimistic about how we approach life with God, but, but sometimes we need to, we, we can't ignore some of the difficulties of Scripture and the warnings that come along with it here. And this is one of those, a call for the people to remember who God is and what it means to honor him and how we reflect him in the world. One commentator said this, if we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to bullying authorities, makes converts left and right, and lives a life of astonishing poverty sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, then how you go about that matters. (laughs) He goes on to say, We either choose to live in the presence of God who made the world and who longs passionately for it to be set right, or we lapse back into some variety of easygoing disobedience and disrespect of God's presence, even if it has a Christian veneer to it. Holiness, in other words, is not an optional extra. How's this all sitting with you? <laughs> I know this is hard stuff. We will, we will come around here to, to a, a, an encouraging uh, way forward. But what I experienced this week as I was studying this is to be reminded to have some awe and wonder at who God is and take seriously the way that I'm following that, uh, that way of life. Or will I, like Ananias and Sapphira, put on that face and say, yep, I'm following 100%, (laughs) but not really doing that. Not being honest with myself or even in the presence of God. The way that we reflect God's character and nature matters. So Luke puts a very clear statement here at the beginning of chapter five to remind his readers that what has been a hallmark of God, his character and nature, and has been a hallmark of his people from the very beginning still matters. And we are to be the ones that represent God's presence on earth, carrying out his charge to be witnesses. This is where following the way of Jesus, like we were just saying, can be unsettling because it calls us to a particular kind of life, which is not easy. Not easy uh, in general, not easy in the culture that we live in, but it is what we were designed for. 
This type of following Jesus, completely being wholly changed, formed, and transformed is what we were made for. And here's where we will end this morning, reflecting on the fact that trying to live out the way of Jesus, that we get some help. We're guided by his spirit, right? And we can help each other out in this process. It takes some authenticity. It takes some humility to say, I need some help. I might be struggling, but we also have um, the help of the Holy Spirit. But that's part of why we get to gather together because I need you, you need me, and we need each other, amen? (laughs) This is where God's grace gets shown uh, in very practical ways because the call to holiness is a good one. It's a great one. We call it life-giving, right? We, are, we, we did this, you know, I think a year and a half ago or as well, but we talked about the free Methodist way, and one of the free Methodist way things is that our denomination calls it life-giving holiness uh, because our, to our forebears, holiness as understood, um, as holiness is understood as a radical transformation of heart and mind, which result in fully loving God and fully loving each other. It means that we understand that being formed in God's likeness is what we are designed for. It's how we were made to live. The fancy word for it is called sanctification. <laughs> and I'll just read a little bit about what that is here. Uh, sanctification is that saving work of God Uh, beginning with the new life in Christ, where the Holy Spirit renews us, renews his people, changing us to become more like him, changing us through crisis and process from one degree of glory to another, from one aspect of holiness to another, and, and conforming us into the image of Christ. As believers surrender to God in faith and die to self through full commitment to God, the Holy Spirit fills us with love and purifies us from sin because of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. This sanctifying relationship with God remedies the divided mind, redirects the heart to God, and empowers the believer to please and serve God in their daily living. Therefore, God sets his people free to love him with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. Woo, that's good stuff. <laughs> That's what holiness is. That's what we're called to. And as a follower of Jesus, I want to truly uh, reflect the character and nature, the attributes, attributes of God. And that means that I'm committing to a process of formation. I'm committing to a process of transformation where I bring my whole self to God and trust in, the con- in, in his conviction of my sin because he's a good God. I trust that he's grace-filled in his approach to me and the renewal of my life. And I want to be filled with love for you all and for God and for everyone else around us. Amen. This is the call that we have. This is good stuff. Sanctified people are set free to love God with our entire being and love our neighbors. How life-giving. And I'm so thankful that we're part of a denominational family that prioritizes that way of life. So, just to end here, as we go from here this week, I encourage you to think about this story of Ananias and Sapphira because part of what, what is happening is they're not totally transformed and, and, and formed into the image of God and they're not being honest with themselves, but as Peter said, they're not being honest with God. And so he puts this story in here knowing that all his Jewish readers would connect it to these Old Testament stories all about the holiness of God. God is holy and the way that we live into that life matters. So as we go from here this week, think about this story. And as we think about pursuing holiness, 
Maybe take some time this week to examine your own motives and your own intentions in your actions and the decisions that you have to make. Uh, How can you work for greater honesty in your own life and in your interactions with other people? How can you guard against casual disobedience or a disregard for God's holiness in your day-to-day living? And how can we work to ensure that our actions align with our beliefs? We've talked about this idea of our profession and our practice. Does what we say we believe line up with the way that we live, (laughs) our profession and our practice? This is always one of the most difficult calls in the way of Jesus. Am I living with integrity in the way that Jesus has called me to be? Most of the time, the answer is, well, I'm trying my best, (laughs) right? Not always, Lord, help me, give me grace, and we help each other do that. Worship team, would you come on back up? So how can we work to ensure that our actions align with our belief? And what are some practical steps that we can take to maintain uh, authenticity and integrity in our faith and our actions? I want to encourage you to, to... Ask yourself some of those questions. Take some time of reflection in your life this week. Write some things that you can do that'll solidify that alignment in your life. And what you'll experience is a deep connection with God's spirit and a greater ability to love others and love God, which is always a good thing, right? It'll be very, very good. All right, let's pray together.